Go with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to look at our verse that the Lord has given us for 2022. <clears throat> As we trust Him and believe God for the work that He's doing in our lives to bring us to the place where we are, where we are better than we've ever been. Thank you, Lord. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. May the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, say these words with me, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Man, I sense it in my spirit, church. You are getting a hold of these words, aren't you? You can hear it in these glory stories and these reports that are coming back in. People are grabbing a hold of this and laying hold of it. That's what Sarah's talking about, laying hold of these words, perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling. This is what the God of all grace is doing in our lives in 2022 and beyond. Amen? Perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling. Now, we've touched briefly on a little bit about what some of these words mean, and we'll talk more about it in the future, but just begin to let the Holy Spirit paint a picture on the inside of what you look like perfected. Man, a lot of people can't even wrap their head around that. It's all right. You don't have to wrap your head around it. Your heart, though, will get it. What do you look like perfected? That means what, what do you look like with everything restored to you that was stolen or lost? What do you look like restored? What do you look like developed, completed? What do you look like perfected? The Holy Ghost, if you let him, will go to work on the inside and create an image of you, your life, your family, perfected. What about established? What about established on the course that God's called you to? No more wandering and wandering. No more bouncing back and forth. No more stumbling around in the dark. You are established on course. What do you look like? What would life look like if you were established? What would you look like strengthened in every area of your life? Spirit, soul, body, strengthened. What do you look like not weak? Hmm? You got to come to the place where you are done being weak. I'm done. I'm done being weak. I'm done being easily pushed around. I'm done being up one day and down the next. I'm done being an, an emotional basket case. I'm done being weak, right? I'm strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I I'm strong in my inner man as I pray in the Holy Ghost. He builds me up on the inside. My immune system is strong. I'm strong physically. I'm strong spiritually. I'm strong emotionally. I'm strong financially. Come on, what's better, stronger or weaker? In every area of life, what's better, stronger or weaker? Is it better to be stronger physically or weaker physically? Stronger, you know that. Come on, coffee drinkers, help me out. What's better, stronger or weaker? Stronger. With the exception of certain smells, stronger is always better. And you got to get a picture on the inside of what you look like stronger, strengthened, stronger than you've ever been. And if you were weak and now you're strong, what are you? You're better than ever. This is what the scripture is talking to us about, better than ever. But what we've noticed uh, over the last week or so is this, this part of this scripture that we would, I think, very much like to read, read over or take out altogether, but you can't do that. He said, may the God of all grace who's called you by his eternal glory or to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. Is this perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling, is this going to happen in our lives apart from the suffering that he's talking about. <laughs> Listen to that thunderous response. I know, I get it. But if, if there's something in you that pushes back against that, it may be because we don't really understand what he's saying. Every word of this is for our good. Every word of this is for our benefit. So if there's something about suffering 
that you just want nothing to do with, then, then you may need to go back and look at some of the scriptures again and find out what is it he's exactly talking about. And I don't know if there's anything more misunderstood in the body of Christ than this right here, suffering. And you've got, like we've talked about before, you've got people who fall into different groups and you've got some groups that think that any and all suffering is God doing something to you, God teaching you something, God punishing you for something, God smiting you for something. And if you even ask them, what does it mean? What does smite mean? I don't know. They just know it sounds bad and it must be God and this suffering that I'm dealing with has to be God doing something in my life. And you've even got some people that take this concept of suffering so far that they do themselves harm. They bring pain on themselves in an effort to identify with Christ's suffering. Folks, you've got to go to the Bible and find out what this actually means. Don't try to fill in blanks and don't let somebody else's experience or their lack of knowledge try to fill in the blank that only God and his word can fill. Find out what he's talking about. There are people laying blame for their suffering at the feet of God all the time. But you know, this same book of first Peter talks to you about suffering for your own faults. This is not the suffering that we're called to. People, I mean, people are like, man, I, 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 got, I got fired from my job. I, I, I think it's just they, they, they hate Christians. I'm just being persecuted over there. I got, I got fired because I'm a Christian. And you go and interview the boss and you're like, why'd you fire this guy? Well, uh, he was four hours late every day didn't turn in his work and the work that he did turn in was wrong, cost the, the, the business tens of thousands of dollars. You ain't being persecuted. This is called suffering for your own. And I'll add this dumb fault. That's my paraphrase. There, there is a suffering that we go through, but be honest about it. When you're in the middle of pain or discomfort, you need to stop and go, what, what's, what's going on here? And people talk about, you know, God's just doing something in my life. You know, relationally, he's just burning things away, just burning away relationships. The same book of first Peter says, don't be caught suffering for being a busybody, being a gossip, talking about other people and, and other things that are none of your business. Do you know what kind of world of hurt you get yourself into by being a gossip? Don't go laying blame at the feet of God for that. He's not trying to teach you something. He's not burning away things in your life. You did that. Can you see where we've missed some of this stuff? Find out what the scripture's talking about. When he's talking about this suffering, 1 Peter 5, 10, after you've suffered a while, he can perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, I got a lot of things going on in my head and my heart right now. So y'all believe God with me. I feel like after last week I got home and I just, I feel like maybe I gave, tried to give you too much and preach about six sermons at once. So we're going to just chill a little bit today. Well, one of the things you need, thank you. One of the things you need to understand about this verse in particular, you notice he said, after you have suffered, how long? A while. Don't you wish he'd said, a day, a week, a month, even a year. Why? Because that is a length of time with a beginning and an end. We use the term a while when it's, it's a little more ambiguous. It's a little more, um, well, you know, when are you going to be here? In a while. That could mean any time between five minutes from now and next Thursday. You don't know, right? A while. And the reason I bring that up is because the one thing that God needs from you for this perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling to take place is time. You've got to give him time. Now I say the one thing, it's not enough just to let time go by. It's how you it's how you are in the time. It's not about just waiting. It's the condition in which you wait. 
It's not about time going by. It's about the condition in which you live as time goes by. And what I'm talking about is being in faith. This perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling, we know from this verse, is a work of the grace of God. May the God of all grace, who has called you, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. But you know this, that whatever grace does, whatever grace gives, has to be received by faith. Right? And that's why we looked at what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. We looked at this last week. But do you remember what he said? He said, I have fought the good fight. Here he is at the end of his life. And he's, he's summing up the whole thing by saying this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have what? Kept the faith. What's going on in that time period of suffering a while. This is what I want to deal with today. What's happening in that time period? Now look back in this same chapter in 1 Peter chapter 5. Just back up to verse 1. And we are going to identify three things in this one chapter that you and I are supposed to, if you will, Suffer as believers. <laughs> Man, I can tell this goes over big. Just, just chill. Just chill. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, and he said, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, all the way through 1 Peter, you see these two things go hand in hand. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. And as we study this, you'll see it. But look at it for yourself. Go look at every time throughout this little book where you see suffering. And then look where you see the glory of God on display. He said, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock... Of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now look at verse five. Likewise, you younger people, submit. Somebody say, submit. submit. Likewise, you younger people, Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be. Come on, all of you be. All of you be submissive to one another. Here you see one of the big sufferings that you and I as believers are to carry. It is the suffering of submission. The suffering of submission. Let me put it to you another way, and, and you, you tell me if this makes more sense as a suffering. You could call the suffering of submission the suffering of not getting your own way all the time. Now, if you've ever submitted, and I mean truly submitted your will to the will of God or your will to somebody else's will, you know there's some suffering involved in that. And, and Peter even talks in this letter about suffering by not living according to the, the desires of your own flesh anymore. I call it suffering because it is literally the crucifixion of the flesh. Paul said those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. There is some suffering that goes along with submitting. Now, let's keep going just for a moment. You've got the suffering of submission. That's one. He says, be clothed with humility. Why? Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To submit requires humility. Verse six, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. There Peter goes again with his ambiguous time periods in due time. Okay, Peter, when is God going to exalt us? You know, in a while. 
Okay, when exactly? In a while. At due time. I know, it's frustrating. <laughs> Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. This is how you do that, verse 7. Casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Now, verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. That means be awake, be alert. Why? Because you have an adversary, the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9, resist him. What are we to do with the devil? Resist him. And how do we do it? Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Can you see the connection between suffering and resisting? So we've got the suffering of submission, but we've also got the suffering of resistance. Are you tracking with me? There is a suffering, and, and every time I say the word, I feel it like we're having to redefine it and just renew our mind about what it actually means. There is a suffering that goes along with resisting the devil. And this is, this, when, when we get around to this, will help clarify what is of God and what is not. And whatever is not of God, our assignment is to resist that trash. Resist that mess. And this is where people are so confused about suffering. They feel like, well, I'm sick. God must be saying something. God must be showing something. I'm just suffering. No, you're supposed to be resisting. Now you're not supposed to be suffering the sickness, but there is some suffering that goes along with resisting. What do I mean by that? Have you ever been laid up in bed, sick from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, weak, feel like trash? The last thing you feel like doing is resisting. The last thing on your mind is getting up out of that bed, getting a hold of the word of God and begin to march up and down that bedroom and declare what you have in Jesus, who you are in Jesus, the victory that belongs to you in Jesus and resist. And it's suffering on the flesh. But guess what? Jesus did not bear that for you. In other words, he's not going to do your resisting for you. We are told in the book of James, submit to God. What came next? Resist the devil. There is a suffering of submission and there is a suffering of resistance that you and I are called to. But what's happening? What's happening as we submit? What's happening in the time that we spend resisting? You want to know what's happening? Perfecting is happening. Strengthening is happening. Establishing, settling is happening while you're submitting, while you're resisting. And he said, resist the devil knowing that these same sufferings are happening in your brotherhood all over the world. Now he's talking not just about the suffering of submission, the suffering of resistance. This is the suffering of persecution. And we touched some on that last week. And we can't get into all of that today. It's going to take us some time. How long, you might say? A while <laughs> to, to really understand all of that. But here's what I believe we need to do today is find out what this suffering's about. Whether it's the suffering of submission, the suffering of resistance, or the suffering of persecution, what's it all about? And you see the answer to that in this book of 1 Peter chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 with me. I'll say this to you, that whether you're dealing with the suffering of submission, resistance, or persecution, Jesus is the ultimate example. He suffered every one of these. And we're going to talk about it. He suffered submission. You say, how did he do that? Do you remember moments before the cross? What's he crying out? If there's any way this cup can pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. That's the suffering of submission. And he showed us how to do it. 
the suffering of resistance. Jesus was our example. You remember when he was in the wilderness, 40 days and nights, and he's fasting, and Satan is tempting him, tempting him, tempting him. And what's he doing the whole time? Resisting, resisting, resisting. Even when his flesh didn't have the, the natural food or the natural strength, he's drawn on something else to spiritually resist against the temptation of the enemy. He's resisting the devil. And I'll just give you a little sneak peek of how he did it. But do you remember every time Satan came to him and tempted him with something, what did Jesus say? It is written. It is written. What's he doing? He's resisting with the word of God. This is the suffering of resistance. And of course, we know he suffered persecution. And we know from scriptures we've looked at already that we are called to that same suffering. We're not redeemed from persecution. Well, this will make more sense later. Everybody just relax. It's okay. It's okay. First Peter chapter one. Folks, I'm believing God for revelation like right now. I'm going to be real honest with you. There's a bunch of this stuff I don't get. And I'm like, Lord, are you sure? But of course he is. But I'm believing God right now. There's some stuff you and I are about to get into in the next minute or two that I know. E even as early as 5.30, 6 o'clock this morning, I'm reading it going, I know there's more in here. There is something in here I don't see yet. But I'm believing we're going to see it together. So you be in faith with me. First Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 6. In the New King James, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, there it is again, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, the King James says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it, what is it? Your faith. Though your faith is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing, the trial, and the genuineness of your faith. That's what this suffering is all about. It's the testing, the trial of your faith. Now, what did Paul say to Timothy? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. What is he saying? There was who knows how many opportunities through the course of his life in ministry to be robbed of his faith. And he tells you about a handful of those opportunities. What is it in the book of Philippians? He talks about all the stuff that happened to him. I've been in prison. I've been chained. I've been beat over and over. I've been stoned and not that kind of stoned, the other kind of stoned. <laughs> I have been in shipwrecks, three of them, he said. Three shipwrecks. That's like somebody you know being in three different plane crashes. That's crazy. The odds of that alone are just crazy. And he said, I've been in three shipwrecks, a night in the day out in the deep. He has been through some stuff, man. But the assignment on all of it was try to rob him of his faith. And let me, let me just get into this for a second. When Satan comes to tempt and we're told to resist the devil, what is it we're resisting? I mean, if he was here in the flesh, then we could physically push back, but he ain't here in the flesh. So what is it we're resisting? And you might think, well, you're resisting the temptation to sin. Okay, sure, that's part of it. But if you really understand what has happened through the spilled blood of Jesus, then you understand sin's not the problem it used to be. Because even when you do miss it, even when you do mess up, the Bible says you and I have an advocate with the Father. And we have the right to go before the Lord and say, I plead the blood of Jesus and I receive your, your mercy, your cleansing, your forgiveness. And the power of the blood washes sin away like it never happened. So is sin really the big issue? What is it we're resisting? When we are resisting the devil, you are resisting the temptation to stop trusting God. You are resisting the temptation to lose your faith. 
That's what the suffering is all about. The satanic assignment on it is to strip you of your faith. God's assignment on it is to test the faith, but not to strip you of it, to strengthen it, to strengthen it, the testing of your faith. I know I'm shouting, but you're still not excited about it. And I get it. Listen, I get it because it's like, well, Lord, can't you just believe me? I have faith. Do we have to test it? How many of you drove here in a car today? It's about everybody, right? How many of you are thankful that before you bought that car, the manufacturer tested it? You ever flown in an airplane before? Are you thankful that they didn't just throw some parts together and think, well, that looks a lot like an airplane. I bet you it'll fly. Let's put 200 people in it and see what it does. What do they do with it? They test it and they test it and they test it and they test it. And that car you drove here in, they test it and they test it and they test it. How did they test it? Man, they put it through every imaginable situation. They find out where the weaknesses are in it and they get rid of those so that they can strengthen it. Is anybody thankful that they, they, they did that to your car? Yeah. Testing is a good thing. Testing is a good thing. Now, from Satan's perspective of it, he would love nothing more than to strip you of your faith. Why? Because your faith is the most precious, valuable thing that you possess. This is the stuff we walk by. Faith is the stuff we live by. Faith is the stuff we talk and fight by. Faith is the stuff that gives us the victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith is what pleases God. And without it, there is no pleasing God. Faith is your connection to him. It's your access to him. It's your access to his grace. And without your faith, there is no access to his goodness or his grace. This is the most precious, valuable thing you have. And it's exactly why Satan is trying to strip you of it. And Paul said, I'm come to the end. I fought the fight. I ran the race and I kept it. He didn't strip it from me. He didn't get my faith. I kept it all the way to the end. This is what these, this, this time period called a while is all about. Satan is at work trying to strip you of your faith. Now the New Living Translation says it like this. He said, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though You must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show, listen, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Do you know that if you come to the end of your life and you are able, honestly able to say what Paul said, if you're able to stand in the presence of God and say, I fought the fight, I ran the race, I kept the faith you gave me. Do you know what's going to happen? He is going to praise your faith. Did we just read that? That your faith would be found to praise, honor, and glory. The Father would praise your faith. Just because you kept it. Just because you refused to be stolen from. He's going to praise your faith. Is that that almost too big for anybody else? He is going to praise and honor our faith in him. Glory to God. But he's saying what's happening right now is that it's being tested. And it's being tested the same way gold is tested. 
And how is gold tested? Fire. Fire tests gold. Do you notice he keeps using this word genuine? We'll look at that here in a second. He's calling your faith genuine faith. Well, that's how you find out if what you're looking at is real gold. Has it been through the fire? Because if you put that stuff through the fire and it came out bright and it came out clean and it came out purified, you know it's real. If it's fake, then it burns up. So if there's a genuine faith, then what else must there be? A fake faith. An imposter faith. A counterfeit faith. And Paul wrote to Timothy about that. Turn there and look at this with me. First uh, Timothy. He mentioned it to him a couple of times. And one in First Timothy. Uh, chapter one, verse five, he said, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from a sincere faith, a sincere faith. The New Living Translation calls it a genuine faith. King James says an unfeigned faith. The Message Translation calls it a, warns about a counterfeit faith. If you can have a real faith, you can also have a fake faith. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse, well, just look at verse 3. He said, I thank my God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. Verse five, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith, not the fake faith, not the counterfeit faith, the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is in you also, now look at what he says in verse six. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is exactly what the spirit of the Lord was saying through Sarah just a moment ago. You got to stir this stuff up. Now, Timothy, bless his heart. If, if you put, to, put together some things, connect some dots from first Timothy to second Timothy, some things that the scripture reveals to us throughout the New Testament. Man, this is a, this is a sweet young man. He's, he loves Paul. He loves the Lord. But evidently, he's, he's very tenderhearted. Paul talks more than once about his tears. And, and then Paul writes to him and said, I, I, I'm, I'm so full of joy when I remember the genuine faith that's in you that was first in your mom and then in your grandmother. This is what every young man wants to hear from his mentor. You remind me so much of your mother and so much of your grandmother. But Paul writes to him and he says, there is a genuine faith that is in you. It's not fake. In other words, there are things that look a lot like faith. There are things that sound a lot like faith. There are things that act a lot like faith. And yet they could be counterfeit. They could be imposters. How would you know? Huh? How would you know if what you have is real or if what you have is fake? Now, let me just stop right there. Wouldn't you want to know? I know I would. Because fake faith, you can't count on it for nothing. It's not going to produce a thing. So how would you know? How would you know if it's the real deal, if it's genuine or if it's fake? How would you know? Test it. You have to test it. And Paul said there's a genuine faith. The real deal is in you. But what did he say to him? Stir it up. Stir up the faith. Stir up this gift of God that's in you. And then he said in the next verse, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings. 
for the gospel according to the power of God. There was some serious persecution going on right where Timothy was. I don't want to get into all the history of it, but there was some serious persecution taking place in the church. And Paul had been taken prisoner. And when he wrote to him and he said, stir this thing up, don't be ashamed of me. God's not given us this spirit of, this spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Don't be ashamed of me. Why is he having to tell him that? Because there was a real temptation to distance himself from Paul. When the heat is on, when the pressure is at its greatest, there is a real temptation to back off what you believe. And if your tendency is to back off, guess what you're finding out? This thing you've called faith, it's not the real deal. So Paul said to Timothy, hey man, come on. I know you're crying, but stir it up. Stir it up. Now here's what's so cool. This word stir up in the Greek, it's, the, it's this Greek word anazopereo. And it's made up of three words. Ana is the word again. Zo or zoe is life, but pereo. You want to know what that word is? Fire. What did Paul tell Timothy? Put life in the fire again. Stir up that faith, man. Rekindle it. Other translations even say that. Rekindle it. Get some fire back in your faith. Now, here's the thing about gold. When you put real gold in the fire, you want to know what happens? It gets brighter. It doesn't get darker. It doesn't diminish. The fire actually makes it brighter. Paul's saying to Timothy, put some life in that fire again. There's more to say about this, but for time's sake, just do this with me. Well, let me keep reading here. I don't want to miss this. He said in verse nine, well, back up verse eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. How do you know if what you have is real? When it's in the fire, does it get brighter or does it get dim? Do you notice what he kept saying here? I'm not ashamed. Being ashamed is a picture of drawing back. Being ashamed is a picture of trying to distance yourself. It's not a picture of you getting brighter. It's a picture of you getting darker. How do you know if what you have is real? Well, when it's being tested and you're in the fire, right? Are you getting brighter? Is your faith getting bolder? Is your faith getting stronger? Are you getting more vocal about it? Or are you yielding to the temptation to back off it? This is a trial by fire. In Daniel chapter 3, You're familiar with this story, but listen to this. Daniel chapter three, I'll read several verses to you. Beginning in verse one, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. This is about 90 feet tall. 
He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, O nations and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Folks, mandatory worship is not worship. I know we don't have any kind of frame of reference for our government mandating things. Um, but this was in a time when you would see that. It says in verse six, whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So worship or die. So anybody who falls down, let me just ask you, is there true, authentic worship coming out of their heart? No, it's the fear of death. So at that time, verse seven, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse eight, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, in symphony, with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. In other words, he's saying, we'll be good. If you do it, we're good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of what? A burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What's being tested? Faith. Conviction. Trust. And if there was ever an opportunity to back off your faith, this would be it. Literally, a trial by fire. But what happens to the real deal? What happens to genuine faith when it's faced with fire? Does it back off? Does it get dark? Does it get dim? No. Like gold, it gets brighter. And so he gave them an option. And I want you to see this because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this account. And even other translations have translated this incorrectly. He gives them an option. If you bow, I won't throw you in. If you don't bow, I will throw you in. Now listen to their response. Where did we leave off? Verse 16. 
He said, who's going to deliver you from my hands? What God's going to deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Other translations say we don't need to defend ourselves. They said, verse 17, if that is the case, if what is the case? If you throw us in, if that's the case, if that's the case that you throw us in the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. What's happening right now? Real faith is getting brighter. Real faith is getting bolder. And you got to have the real deal to look into the face of the king and say, I'm not even going to defend myself. You want to throw me in? Throw me in. I got a God who will, who will deliver me. Do you hear that? He will deliver. This is faith. He will deliver. Now, this is where a lot of people have it wrong because it says in the next verse, but if not, now a lot of translations say, if he doesn't deliver, that's not what they said. How did this whole thing start off? If you throw us in, God will deliver us. If not, what are they saying? If you don't throw us in, this is not about whether or not God will deliver. They're not saying maybe God will, maybe God won't. They're saying if you throw us in, he'll deliver us. If you don't throw us in, can you see that? Verse 18, if not, if you don't throw us in, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your God, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And that really makes more sense because if they were saying, if God doesn't deliver us, we're not gonna worship. If God doesn't deliver you, you are burned in a fire, bro. So it's not in their mind whether or not God delivers. Come on, listen to me. This is faith. This is this unrelenting hold on their faith. I'm not backing off this thing. God will deliver. I'm not bowing my knee. Come on, what is it we resist? The temptation to stop trusting God. This is what they're resisting right here. The temptation to bow their knee to another God. And you might think, well, man, you know, it would save your life. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm not letting go of my faith. And so you know what? You know what Nebuchadnezzar did? He got so angry. He said, heat that bad boy up seven times hotter. It's got me wondering how hot they test gold at. You know, it's around 2,000 degrees. I got to wonder how hot that furnace was that day. It was hot enough that when they bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they bound them in their clothes. And the Bible gives you a, a detailed list of what they had on. Basically, all flammable stuff. <laughs> Head to toe. Their turban, their coat, their trousers. And they're bound with ropes. And this furnace got so hot that the men, the mighty men, the Bible says, who got these guys and threw them into the fire, the flames killed them. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fall down into the midst of the fire. Come on, what, what is it we do? When we fall into various trials and tests and temptations, what do we do? Count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith is working something. Man, it takes faith to put a smile on your face in the middle of a fire. Where does that come from? You ever looked at somebody who's smiling when they had no business smiling? What do you know? You know that they know something you don't know. They've got inside information. How can you smile in the middle of various trials and tests? You know that the testing of my faith is producing something in me. James said, the testing of your faith works patience and let patience have its perfect work that you would be perfect, established, strengthened, settled. Here these guys go down, bound into the fire. And you know how it goes. Nebuchadnezzar looks up 
And all of a sudden, these guys who were bound are up walking around. The only thing that got burned was what was binding them. The only thing that was incinerated were the ropes. Is that not what happens to gold? You put it in the fire and the only thing that gets burned up is the contaminant, is what's not pure. And it starts shining. Oh, baby, it starts shining. And they're not in there going, is he going to deliver us? Is he not? If he does deliver us, if he doesn't, that's not what they said. They said, if you throw us in, he will deliver us. If you don't throw us in, we are not bending our knee. We are not losing our faith. And you know what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, he looks, did we not throw three men in? I see four men up, loose, walking around. And one of them looks like the son of God. And he got up close to that fire and he called those guys out and they came walking out. Now they have been through the fire and the Bible gives us these details. Not one hair on their head was singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. Just came out brighter than when they went in before. And King Nebuchadnezzar established something that day. He said, there is no God who saves like this God. And he said, if I catch any of y'all talking bad about this God, I'm going to kill you. Yes. Established. What happened? How, how do you find out if what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have is real? You test it. Folks, don't be afraid of the test. Don't be afraid of the test. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.